Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Quick note from us, the sponsor. Finding Genius Foundation is a nonprofit that's currently researching anxiety and depression, looking for every possible treatment for those the cluster of um, activities or syndromes related to anxiety and depression. If you want to find out more about it, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And today, my guest actually is a listener, uh, Professor David Napier. He's a professor of medical anthropology at University College London. He's director of the University Center for Applied Global Citizenship and director of its Science, Medicine, and Society Network. And since 2013, he's been the global academic lead for the City's Changing Diabetes Program, which is a cross-sectoral collaboration aimed at researching and limiting type 2 diabetes in cities around the world. So, David, thanks for coming. Pleasure to be here, Richard. Well, tell me about the diabetes work you do. What what got you into it and when? It's a very um, complex uh, set of events, but essentially, Richard, what uh, what happened was for many years uh, as director of the Science Medicine Society Network, uh, we took on and continue to take on new and emerging problems that aren't owned by as it were, by a particular discipline. So we uh, launched a, Lanc- a Lancet Commission on Culture and Health, for which I was the lead author in 2014. And a few years later, we did one on stem cells and regenerative medicine, uh, which was um, obviously led by uh, distinguished stem cell researchers. But uh, I, um, my organization arranged and, um, and facilitated. And at our university, we have a very um, uh, long-standing and uh, deep tradition of interdisciplinary research as it applies to the grand challenges that we face. And, and, and what this means is that you're always faced with getting people from different disciplines to not only to talk across the table, but actually to go across the table and work together with one another. And, and uh, what we mean by interdisciplinary is, of course, not simply gathering viewpoints from different fields, but trying to raise 
interest in subjects uh, for which those participants realize they have something to gain by participating with others. And indeed, oftentimes this, this requires recognizing that your own discipline may actually be changed, not by what it does internally, but by um, the outside, as in my case, as a medical anthropologist, a field that 30 years ago was something of a peculiarity, perhaps, but today is, um, is quite central in terms of understanding how our, um, our sense of uh, what we value socially and culturally uh, impacts uh, the way in which we, the way in which we understand illnesses, how we're treated, how we respond to treatment. And this, this has led to a number of initiatives, one of them being Cities Changing Diabetes, where we were approached um, by Novo Nordisk. Uh, Novo Nordisk makes about half the world's insulin. Uh, it's the largest corporation in Denmark. And, and they were interested in uh, issues around around adherence. Why it is that, uh, why it is, first of all, the diabetes is, um, is um, really exploding globally. I mean, they're now uh, the International Diabetes Federation estimates there are about 463 million people living with diabetes globally. And to put that in perspective, if diabetes were a country, it'd be the third largest country in the world. So the question of what's happening in diabetes that's non-clinical is really quite important because of those uh, 463 million people, only estimated about half of them are diagnosed as such. And of those diagnosed only about half of those are actually in treatment. This is what we call the rule of halves. And of those, only about half of those people who are in treatment actually are achieving their um, their treatment targets. And, and of those, only about half are uh, living lives that aren't uh, complicated by comorbidities. And this is really quite critical because in many healthcare systems, for example, in the UK where I work, um, Diabetes UK estimates that, that about 20% of the annual budget of the National Health Service, the world's largest employer, goes to diabetes comorbidities and their, their treatment. And, and, and when you start to think about how small that number of those who achieve desired outcomes are, you begin to realize the incredible human suffering that's not addressed. And also, you begin to realize uh, the financial uh, the, the financial impact of uh, this one uh, this one disease on healthcare systems globally, many of which are threatened um, significantly by uh, diabetes and its um, and its risk factors. Now, the question here, from the eyes of a medical anthropologist, what are you looking for when you're looking at? populations or patients with diabetes versus a regular doctor? Well, first of all, what we're trying to figure out is if you, you can imagine that the reason that anyone would be interested in the fact that of those 463 million, only half were diagnosed, cut that figure in half, receiving care in half, achieving targets half, achieving desired outcomes half again. And you realize that final half, I mean, this is a, just a rough half. It might be on a good day, it might be 30% of people in the UK or in a, in a, in a place where you have uh, really good um, uh, health welfare infrastructure. In, uh, in Mexico, it might be 8%. In, um, in Indonesia, it might be 1%. That is to say, these are people for whom, whose experiences aren't significantly mediated by sociocultural factors. In other words, if you're in that last percent and you're achieving your desired outcomes, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, well-educated or not. In other words, take all the social determinants. It really doesn't matter because whatever you're doing, you're doing well. The problem is that's a very small percentage. Yet at the same time, about no, on a given day, if you look at sociocultural drivers of diabetes, 
and you go on ISI Web of Science or Web of Knowledge or um, Scopus, for example, you may find that the uh, percentage of publications, scientific publications that address that are maybe as low as three to eight percent. So, so we're really by constructing this as a pure, purely biomedical problem, uh, we're failing to address what what the key drivers of the illness are, and we're failing therefore to develop responses to to that disease that will help us to reduce uh, where it's going uh, in the next 25 years, up to you know, 700 million people uh, conservatively. So we really need to, to understand this, uh, first of all, that the, the, that the domain of diagnosed people constitutes not just a biological problem, but a biosocial one, because these people, for whatever reason, aren't able to adhere and achieve outcomes. And indeed, for half of the world, for whom uh, who remain undiagnosed, it's a purely social and cultural issue, isn't it? I mean, the, the, if you have no idea that you're living with a disease until it impacts you and you get that diagnosis, your experience, daily experience of it, is not in, in any way something that's uh, medi- medically uh, defined. So we think that the that our understanding of it is of, of this disease and indeed of of many diseases uh, that that it impacts, like COVID-19, where you have roughly a a third of all people who die in hospital of COVID-19 living with diabetes, you begin to realize we've got to look in other places if we're going to understand that. So what we've done is uh, Cities Changing Diabetes now works in 36 cities uh, as of since 2014. I think we're one of the longest public-private partnerships in healthcare that's actually a research-oriented initiative in existence. And uh, we're working with... uh, public health departments and and uh, activists in all of those cities representing populations of approaching 200 million people. We have a global academic network of around 120, 130 people. And our idea is to try to unpack how diabetes, mortality, morbidity is driven locally. And primarily the way we do that is by assessing social vulnerability, which is uh, something that we can talk about if you care to. When you say social vulnerability, what does that mean? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Well, what it means is that that if you if you think about what it is that makes people unable to adhere, you need to break that down uh, because typically we'll do surveys about service utilization, and that's very important to understand patterns and barriers uh, to using what we actually have. That's the what we would call the the the, the service domain or the formal domain. Uh, what are, what services are available? Who uses them? Who doesn't? As in COVID nineteen, who's getting vaccinated? Who isn't? What impact uh, does knowledge? and utilization have on uptake. So we want to interview people and find find these things out. But 
We also want to know, in the absence of the, that formal sector, what happens at community levels? We often talk about this in terms of social or cultural capital. That is to say, what are the community structures? What are levels of engagement or alienation? What happens in communities? How do they adapt? Are stakeholders formal uh, stakeholders like departments of health? Are they local activists? In Texas, we uh, the assessment we did in Houston we found that faith-based organizations were extremely important in terms of uh, generating um, action on, on diabetes. So we want to understand uh, what those adaptations are. Uh, we want to see if they are, um, if they are scalable, if they're good or not good. I mean, many adaptations aren't uh, necessarily. I mean, gangs are, are a form of social adaptation in the absence of uh, uh, formal services in many, in, in many places, as we see in the barrios and flavelas, uh, where, uh, where they've been involved in social distancing initiatives and mass work and so forth. So we, we examine the community domain just to see, to see how communities adapt. And this is really important because in the context of stress, oftentimes communities, uh, inequalities get exaggerated because stress, stresses are defined by resource depletion and uh, simply not community not being able to adjust or adapt. And, and of course, what that means is that oftentimes in, in times of stress, those definitions of community itself can shrink radically to the point where, you know, where, where it's not only as it was in COVID, is it remains in COVID-19, say in the United States, states against the government or mayors against the state or neighborhoods against, uh, against the cities or people fighting for toilet paper with their next door neighbors. I mean, that is to say, the definition of us can shrink radically in, in, a con in a stressful context. And so we need to understand that dynamic. And then we need to see because of that, um, who actually gets left out? I mean, who are the people that are perhaps living um, marginalized existences when times are good, who, uh, who become deeply vulnerable and alienated even within, uh, within communities when those when those inequalities get exaggerated. And of course, the only way you can do that, um, Richard, is you have to go out and find these people, don't you? I mean, you have to actually uh, do what we call a snowball sampling, where you find somebody you think is vulnerable uh, by whatever, you know, whatever definition uh, uh, your assumptions lead you to, to assume how, how, you know, how vulnerability is defined. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And then you have to uh, go from that person and find, ask them if they know of somebody else who's actually not able to make it to the interview, who for whatever reason is so vulnerable, they cannot pass that threshold. And one needs to go out then to find these people and, and characterize them. And of course, doing so shows us that these local definitions of vulnerability are sometimes made up of very complex risk factors that fuel one another and that uh, that that the definitions themselves are often often hidden because they don't uh, they don't necessarily uh, represent themselves uh, very well. And of course, if you look at what happened in in, in COVID nineteen, when we talked about vulnerability, and I'm on the WHO uh, research roadmap and was at the February 11, 12 meeting in Geneva where COVID nineteen was uh, was uh, named, and, and and when you think about Initially, who we think of as vulnerable, it's mostly the biomedically defined categories as an elderly, people with diabetes, obesity. If we can, since you've been studying diabetes for a lot longer, can you tell me about an example of a very successful population and what they did? And you hinted at it with faith-based organizations. Can you tell me about, again, one really successful one and then maybe one where 
you encountered, like you said, the people that uh, that had problems with, with diabetes, for instance, in this case, and, and sure. how they couldn't get access. Sure. I mean, one of the things that to take a case is close to home to you, and one of the things that, that we discovered in, in Houston was that um, was that people consistently turned to their to their churches for advice, especially for uh, lifelong illnesses uh, for which they perhaps um, were challenged to adhere, and um, either because they couldn't afford it or because diabetes may have been fourth, even though it may be the thing that was uh, most dangerous to their survival, maybe something that was eight or ninth or tenth on their list of uh, concerns. If you're, a, say, a single parent living in a food desert with a, ch- a child in need, the, the chances are that you're that you're not going to be able to address the the healthy eating and exercise habits that may have an impact on your experience of the illness. And, and furthermore, if you're a public health official, you may assume that, that those people living in food desert are your major uh, target of concern, the same way you might assume that, say, irregular migrants who uh, don't want to be on um, the healthcare system's radar will show up very late, far after uh, their, their illness is reversible because they're suffering from serious consequences that keep them from being able to work. And in Houston, those categories were, were, the, were the, the kind of the obvious low-hanging fruit when it came to understanding vulnerability. But we were surprised to think about how the lived environment of the city had an impact on, on diabetes vulnerability. If you think about you know, the, you know how big Houston is, I and mean, you could fit the six largest cities in the United States within its um, within its borders. As a new and emerging, as it were, uh, grow, rapidly growing megacity, uh, you, you you begin to realize that one of the biggest challenges is is what happens to commuting times. If your commuting time is going to increase um, twenty or thirty minutes every few years because of uh, the growth, the rapid growth of the uh, of the city, people in the suburbs become very vulnerable. And in fact, we we found that some of the most vulnerable people were well-educated middle-class people who lived in gated communities in suburbia um, because you think the lifestyle uh, was largely spent in one's car driving back and forth to work and and of course wanting to nourish nourish your family relations uh, by feasting on weekends and it's a very very common pattern and indeed uh, it surprised everyone that the, that the things that we would assume public health would cure, like telling people about risk factors, would have an impact on some of the more educated people in the community. And that's not necessarily uh, the case. So there was an example of of an eye-opening, as it were, definition, case definition of, of vulnerability that wasn't on anyone's radar. And of course, how you respond to those uh, to those uh, challenges is is really interesting. In the case of Houston, we talked uh, about the importance of faith based organizations. If you go to uh, Copenhagen, we work there, and everybody uh, thinks of this is another uh, example. Uh, thinks of Copenhagen as uh, probably the gold standard for uh, for welfare medicine uh, state. I mean, you have to you you have to register. You're you're breaking the law if you don't register for a primary care provider in Denmark, and uh, primary care is free for one and all. Now, you'd think in terms of health equity, this would be an ideal circumstance, which indeed, in many uh, in many ways, it is. And the diabetes, uh, chronic disease rates are relatively low there. The national rate is uh, 7.7% as opposed to, say, 10 plus in most of the U.S. and 17 or 18 percent in, in Mexico City, for, for example. But if you parse that data, and you look at Copenhagen, which is a young, healthy city where a lot of people ride bicycles, the rate drops to 5.5, 5.3, something like that percent. But 
if you then take people who you would consider at risk, say people like me, men over men over 50, and and you look at northern Europe people of northern European descent who are college educated, that percentage drops to 2.2.1%, something like that. But if, and if you look at migrant populations, it goes up to 18.9%. So you have nine times higher the rate among a, a certain cohorts of the population in a place where healthcare is free, a, a gold standard of, of a, a national healthcare system. And to get to the point, what we found was that among those among those migrant populations who did not have a college education, that for many of them, it wasn't the educational part. It was the fact that they felt very, very socially alienated. And so we began to realize that things like isolation, uh, mistrust, and in the case of Houston, that time poverty, we call it, that is to say, spending all of your time commuting back and forth to work, that these things, these uh, sociocultural drivers were incredibly significant and remain significant um, uh, barriers to uh, reducing uh, the rates of, of, of the illness. So if you can have a 10,000 foot view of, you know, the world and of diabetes and our interaction with it, what do you see are going to be the trends, good and bad for the next few years? Well, I think that the, that the challenge is to reshape our understanding of, of what's actually driving uh, the illness, first of all. I think that once we do that, uh, we're, we're in, in a much better position to be able to respond in a way that's in a way that makes sense. I mean, if you think about when I talk about these case definitions, how complex they are, normally in any kind of randomized control trial, we're going to look at the effects of one thing on another, aren't we? Even if we're doing social science work, we might be looking at the effects of income or education level, things I mentioned on health outcomes over time. That's the social determinants argument where you can show broadly speaking that people with, with poor educational backgrounds and with low income may live many years less than, than, than other cohorts of the population. But the problem for diabetes is that, and this is the, the good side of it, is I think we now have some of the technology. You, you mentioned uh, working earlier on AI. I mean, some of the technology that allows us to measure these complex factors. We can use the same technology that people use to sway voters uh, to understand illness. So we can look at heterogeneous relationships, biological factors like age, health, history, mental health, immunocompromised, chronic comorbidities, those sorts of things. And we can compare them not only to one other factor, but we can look at social factors like education level or access to care, as I mentioned to Den about Denmark, or employment status, economic status, home environment, all those things. And we can compare those to geographical factors, like I mentioned, as I mentioned in Houston, a structure of neighborhoods, you know, distance from work to home, access to food, isolation, water, you know, is it pure? Do people drink it? Availability of transportation. And we can look at the, the actual, what we would call cultural factors. And we don't mean by that national race or ethnicity. We mean shared conventional understandings. So you've got cultures of practice as we do in you know, biomedicine, for example. Now here we might look at things like food habits or activity attitudes or trust in government. A huge one, as we've seen in COVID-19, stigma, you know, rules about sharing. I've mentioned nourishment. We've got a very neutrocentric view of, of eating. We don't think about the need for people to nourish one another and the, natural, the naturalness of doing that. So those things can all be combined, and you could combine them any way you want. But, but if you take three or four or five or six of these that characterize a cohort of people, in a given place, you can come up with a case definition like 
college-educated people in Houston who live in, in suburbia. And you can learn something about how vulnerability emerges. And then you can also learn something about what needs to happen to address it. So, so you can change your framework. And this is my hope, is that, is that we do start to take things like the health and all policies framework. Seriously, this is something that's been around since the Finnish um, presidency of the um, European Union back in 2006. But we don't, we pay lip service to it. But I mean, think about, think about vulnerability in COVID-19 and how much housing was a part of this. Uh, New York, where you have very high numbers of people living in care homes, right? That, that, that's something that would have been obvious to us if we had been thinking about the health dimensions of housing or water and sanitation or transportation or occupational factors or health communication, exposure to toxic, toxic environments, food production, on and on. These are all places, policy domains within which health is critically important for, for improving our, our health destinies. But they're not ones that we generally think about when we think about, when we think about health specifically. We think more uh, uh, specifically about um, the bio, biomedical domain, which is very important. Don't get me wrong. It's critical. But we lose out when we don't um, understand how, how people become vulnerable through these other, uh, these other impacts on their destiny. And if we had, uh, we would have, and this isn't in hindsight, you can say this about the future. We're working on um, uh, preparedness for COVID-19. We're doing COVID-19 vulnerability assessments now in nine countries. The, the fact that, that care facilities, you're more, you're more vulnerable in a care facility, aren't you, than if you're an elderly person, uh, but you're living in suburbia and, and you've got a back garden to sit in. Um, you're more vulnerable if you're unemployed or you're a service employee or you have no health benefits. You can be living in a, you can be the wealthiest person in America living in an apartment on Park Avenue if you can't open the windows and you're sharing a ventilation system and it's poorly uh, filtered, you're much more, much more vulnerable to COVID-19 than somebody um, uh, living with diabetes who's managing it well. In terms of COVID though, I mean, it seems like, um, you know, it's created a lack of resources and it's created a selfishness to a point where it just doesn't seem like people care at all what That's people's right. circumstances. I mean, That's what have you observed? That's right. I think you're absolutely right about that. The, the, the problem is that, that what's happened is that a set of complex things that are going on, but one of them is clearly that social polarization, defined however you like, is indeed um, very much a disease vector for COVID, isn't it? I mean, if you're living alone in isolation and the only thing you can do is be online most of the time, uh, assuming you have benefits and you're able, you're not starving uh, by being uh, living alone in isolation and, and assuming that you've got a relatively stable environment. And remember, domestic abuse has doubled in COVID-19, that you know, you're, you're lucky to be able to spend some time perhaps working online or communicating online. But as you know, from all of the work on on uh, social media, that if you're if you're looking at YouTube videos and you've got ten others to look at, the algorithm's testing you to see what you like because it wants to sell you things, doesn't it? So you're the chances of you being polarized by that by being fed what you want to know about already is not doing anything to help us mediate the uncertainties of everyday life or to negotiate with people who share views that are other than our own. And I think that, that, that you're right, that that creates a very serious mental health challenge. Uh, we did a, I can send it to you, we did a policy brief with uh, colleagues at Vanderbilt, uh, funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation on COVID-19. And this, this pol polarization itself as a disease vector was one of the key uh, points that um, 
that 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 document um, tried to try to drive home. So I think there's quite a bit of danger there in terms of the sorts of things you mentioned at the beginning of your podcast as it relates to the the future of mental health. And of course, we did very little throughout the the the, the pandemic because. Principally, it was a biological problem, even though, by the way, our experience of it was entirely social before we had a vaccine, wasn't it? I mean, people in hospital were being treated for respiratory distress, not for COVID-19, uh, even though our, our social responses made us aware of the fact that 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 isolation would have a significant impact, long-term impact on mental health. Thinking of COVID as only a biological problem, one to be advised by virologists and epidemiologists for to governments, meant that um, meant that there was serious neglect in terms of other, uh, not just other um, psychological needs, but even other, even other public health needs, such as. Uh, breast screening for women, scheduled breast screening was down over 90% in the United States during the last uh, year and a half. So yeah, I think that I think that we're just seeing the very beginning of the sorts of challenges that we are going to face. And we one of the one of the the four key areas we focused on uh, for this policy brief was also in mental mental health. And I, I believe that um that that we will have to uh, face some some serious problems because because if um, those things aren't addressed and they're not addressed immediately, um, um, the people can they they can get rather worse if they don't have the 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 capability to use a behavior change language, the capability, opportunity, and motivation perhaps to find ways of actualizing their hopes in life and. Uh, to leading uh, lives that are, as we say, uh, fully uh, realized. So, yeah, last question or so. What's ahead, do you think, uh, short term, maybe for the next six months and then maybe a year? What dynamics do you see happening in terms of uh, COVID around the world? And then, you know, also diabetes, if you can look at the two for a moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, first of all, remember now that there's been no diabetes screening, no you know, blood testing and so many minimal amounts. Uh, so we do not know what's happened to people in isolation in terms of their health status as it relates to non-communicable uh, non-communicable diseases. We only know it when, when that percentage of people living with diabetes die in hospital or when its main risk factor obesity, where almost 50% of people died in intensive care were also living with obesity. And of course, if you go upstream there, what you're getting at, and this is the point of the vulnerability assessments, you're getting to the, the, fact, to the fact that these are largely socially and socioculturally driven. That is to say, that is to say that they are about the way we live collectively. It's about the values that we hold. It's about how we how people care for one another, how they feel cared for or don't feel cared for. And th- those things are are going to become incredibly, incredibly important. And then of course on on the COVID side, as you pointed out rightly in your in your book about um, viruses, uh, the way we conceptualize viruses has an immense importance for the way in which we think about others. I mean, we the, the invasive nature of conceptualization of viruses where people are closing down borders, if not for real threats, for symbolic ones, because after all, COVID was already present in most places before people were shutting down borders. And indeed, you know, it was in Italian sewage in, in, in 2019, and it was in California at the same time before uh, before February 2020, when it when it really emerged powerfully in China, so so the, the way in which we conceptualize viruses, tremendous impact on on our 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 social responses, our tendency to want to isolate ourselves, which of course we have to do the social distancing measures. They're very important, but but they do have an impact on us, and they tend to they tend to 
reduce our willingness to actually understand the ways in which I agree with them, by the way, with, and I've been saying this uh, for three decades, I agree with some of the people in your book who who were quite um, adamant about um, about viruses as as not meeting the criteria for uh, for being living because because once you once you acknowledge that you realize that that it's that, that our it's our cells that bring the viruses to life and of course the reason that they do that is because our immune system uh, is is actually it's not only our defense mechanism it's also probably the most creative part perhaps aside from our brain. You know, of a human being. I mean, our body's creating 10 to the fifth or 10th, or some people think to the 16th power of different antibodies in our, in our thymus, bone marrow, and, and, and lymph organs. So, you know, we, we actually have to ask, why is it, why is the body doing this? Because, because these cells are the cells that bring life to the viruses. So, so the viruses don't in and of themselves aren't, aren't invasive, but people with that information can actually give it to one another. And that, I think, is a subtle difference, but it's a really important one, because if you think about, about what your body is doing, it's not only defending you, and it, your immune system is not only defending you, but it's also a form of extroverted risk in which you're engaging the world around you, uh, for better or worse, and sometimes for worse. And uh, we know this because, because historically, people who remain completely isolated Amazonians in the age of discovery and dying of the common cold. We need to engage with that difference and we need to mediate that difference and we need to adjust to it. So the viruses that that, that we meet in daily life, uh, which, by the way, we do every single day, uh, largely allow us to make those kinds of adjustments to the world outside of us. And if we are find ourselves constantly um, living in seclusion, uh, we not only can harbor unusual beliefs about the rest of the world that are, uh, can't be confirmed in our daily experience, but we also um, risk being ourselves able to adjust effectively to the world around us. And I think that, that this is one of the, the the key lessons that's emerging from, uh, from COVID-19. Well, very good. David, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Probably my Irish profile at University College London. Uh, most of my publications, both popular uh, things I write for the press and also um, some of the more academic researches, pretty much uh, most of that's uh, in there on that profile and people can follow up on it. And I'm happy to um, to respond to any of your listeners if uh, and when they uh, care to uh, uh, contact me. Very good. Well, David, thank you for coming. It's been a cool experience talking to you. I appreciate it. Well, it's been a great pleasure, Richard, and I wish you all the best of luck with your uh, your enterprise, and I'm sure it'll go famously. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.